The Athletic. F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. With the season now behind us, we review the rest of the field behind Red Bull, ask who is best placed to challenge the next season, and tackle more of your tech questions. The 2023 F1 season is now done and dusted, so for the last in the current series of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco, we're going to finish our review of the teams that we started with that in-depth look at Red Bull last time. So there's plenty to get into with the other nine teams. I'm Ed Straw, but the real star of the show is, of course, Gary Anderson, who has probably endured more F1 seasons than he's had hot dinners. So how are you feeling at the end of that one, Gary? Yeah, I'm feeling okay. It's, um, you know, it's one of those seasons where obviously Red Bull have dominated. You can't take that away from them. They, they just simply did a better job than the other teams, or at least Max Verstappen did. I mean, I keep saying this, if you take Max out of the equation and uh, have Sergio as your number one driver, it's not quite so simple. But any team will always be led by the lead driver, and and that's obviously what they've done. They've, they've been led by Max. They've uh, developed the car characteristics that suit him. And uh, in reality, you know, that if they do that, he gives them back something. Um, or Sergio doesn't seem to always give them back something. So at the end of the day, I think that's the right direction. It's up to drivers to adapt themselves to those driving uh, those driving standards or those driving requirements to sort of join the club. So you can only really say well done to Red Bull. They've they've done it all the way through the year, which is impressive. I mean, Singapore was a little bit of a, a little bit of a blip, but it was a little bit of a blip. So um, you need those now and again, I think, to just make sure you learn about it because they will happen. And you need to make sure how you regroup after them. And they obviously showed that they can do that pretty well. So never mind the domination for the rest of the season, the other more or less 21 races, they will have learned a bit from Singapore that um, you know will put them in a better stead for, for the future. Yeah, and the amazing thing is, without those setup problems they had in Singapore, they probably would have won all 22 races. But 21 out of 22 is is pretty good, isn't it? But uh, yeah, uh, we'll we'll hopefully have something a little bit more competitive next year. But I'm sure Red Bull will be a formidable force. But as always, in the first part of this podcast, the playing field is free for whatever topic has grabbed your attention. So what's on your mind, Gary? Well, I'd like to sort of um, work out how they can make sprint races, which we're having six of next year, more of a feature within the weekend, the Formula One weekend, as opposed to being um, just a, a one stint race as such. You know, at the moment, it's it's that's all it is. It's a shortened version of a Grand Prix. Um, before because it's before the Grand Prix, it sort of highlights how the Grand Prix is going to unfold, or more or less highlights how the Grand Prix is going to unfold. So I would um, I would change it a bit. I change the whole weekend structure a little bit. Um, there's many things I'd like to do with the regulations, but obviously sprint races are the highlight at the moment, and I think that's we'll just uh, focus on that a little bit. So for me, we have a situation where, you know, do we have Saturday and Sunday uh, race weekends? Forget about Friday. At the moment, we have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So we need to make a, a spectacle for the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And that's how some of the circuits you know, make some money, basically, by having people come there on the Friday. Sometimes there's not too many, but it gives you a, a run into the show. So... For me, the first practice session on the Friday uh, would be a one-hour practice session, but it would be for each team has to put in a driver that's not done more than two Grand Prix over the last year or two years or whatever, so that you get the new guys coming in and being introduced to Formula One. If you don't put in a driver that's done less than two Grand Prix over the last couple of years, then you don't run your car. 
person you keep it in the garage if you want because the public you know the public in general want to see cars running but they really want to see their hero drive on the car so sometimes maybe you know a team would say oh well i don't want to run the risk well okay you learn nothing then the car gets parked in the garage so for part two um it will be another free practice session on the friday afternoon um and it would be for the grand prix drivers your contracted team drivers so that would be you know the first time they hit the track we want to limit the amount of time basically that they get on the track a little bit just to make sure that it's a tougher job come Sunday. So that's Friday over in Bournemouth. So the first practice session is for drivers that have done less than two Grand Prix. The second practice session on the Friday is for your Grand Prix drivers. Then you get to Saturday morning. Saturday morning is qualifying. And qualifying consists of more or less what we have now. First session is 20 cars. Uh, out you go. And you um, that is your, as you have now, 20 cars. Let's say it's 20 minutes long, just for nice round figures. Um, and at the end of that, that then, because all cars are out in the track, that then becomes the grid for the sprint race. But it's the sprint, it's the grid for the sprint race reversed. So in other words, you know, if you want to play around with trying to be 14th or 15th or something in in, in uh, Q1, you run the risk of not being at the front for the, the main Grand Prix. You run the risk of being put out of the, the session because you're in the, in, the, in the back five. So that first session, 20 cars running on the track, for 20 minutes becomes a bit of jeopardy as to where you want to put your focus. So the running order at the end of that um, is the, the sprint race, um, which will be on Saturday afternoon uh, in reverse order. You then go to Q2, which is 15 cars. Uh, the five slowest ones are, are parked up. Um, you have 15 cars out for 15 minutes. And again, then you have the Q3, which is the 10 cars out for 10 minutes. Um, you lose the slowest five. And then for Q4, you have the five fastest cars going for a one-lap shootout for five minutes. So basically, you've got five minutes, you've got time for one, one warm-up lap and one time lap. And that's it. That's your grid. The, the five-car shootout at the end of it is for pole position for the Grand Prix. The 20-car run at the beginning is uh, the, the grid for the, for the sprint race, but reversed. And that will force teams to build cars that are actually a little bit better in traffic. The moment it's all about having a fast car and getting on pole and getting out the front and winning the race. It's not about trying to make, make cars or build cars that are actually um, good in traffic. So that situation in my book would be a different spectacle for the sprint race as opposed to being just part one of a Grand Prix. You need, they need to make it different, and that would make it significantly different. Yeah, that is interesting. So it creates a little bit of uh, risk and jeopardy if you want to strategize it. And actually, the point about making cars that are more benign in, in traffic is an interesting point because there's all this focus on trying to calm the wake. But obviously, the wake is going to be there, isn't it? It's the laws of physics. You can adjust it a bit. You can move it around. You can control it to an extent, but it's going to be there, isn't it? So there are those who will argue the solution is actually in the cars being uh, more robust and creating a bit more design incentive could be an interesting way to do that. The way the regulations are now, there is no incentive for the teams to make cars that are better in traffic because it's, it's all about, you know, statistics say it. If you're, not, you know, if you're not at the front, the chances of winning the race are pretty remote. So you have to build a car that's, that's fast enough to get at the front. I've always said that I, I wouldn't mind seeing reverse grid Grand Prix, but I think that's a bit dramatic. I don't mind seeing racing, but the, the problem is that if you have, for example, if you take the top ten and reverse reverse them, you've you've then you've just sort of made the fact that the slowest ten cars don't really matter. You know, 
you're just saying the top 10 reverse. So in other words, the fastest car for the Grand Prix ends up in 10th on the on the grid. Um, it, just sort of, it just sort of dilutes what the 11th to 20th are all about. So I think, you know, unless you reverse the complete grid, you might as well not bother. I would love to see, you know, um, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, uh, Charles III, whoever, coming through from the back and ending up the fifth, sixth, and seventh after having passed a lot of cars than them, you know, just dominating the race A from the front or B, um, starting from 10th and, and, as we've seen in many occasions, still been able to win the race. So it's one of those sort of things I want to see the battle. And the sprint race gives an opportunity to for that to happen. And, and it, it separates it from the Grand Prix. It makes it a completely different event as such, which is what we need. We don't want to be part one of a Grand Prix. You know, it's like watching something on television. You watch the first episode of it. And, um, you know, the second episode of it was just the same. You wouldn't bother. And that's what we get now. You know, we, we just have this repeat of what happens on the sprint race. So I think it needs to be separated. And I think if you're going to do the reverse grid part, which I think there's talk about, you need to reverse the complete grid, not just part of it. And you need to give the the small teams that haven't got the, you know, haven't got the coverage, I suppose you might call it, give them coverage by having them on the front of the grid. There's no, no reason why, you know, the, the teams that are not at the front of the grid can't be able to race well. You know, it's about defence. It's a, You know, you don't block anybody because you, know, you get done for that. You have to leave space. DRS means that they will be overtaking. So at the end of the day, I believe that a solution like that would, a make qualifying for the Grand Prix and the sprint race within the same ep- within the same schedule quite a, an event. Um, and B, it would, as I say, separate the fact that the sprint race and the Grand Prix at the moment are basically the same. We want something different. Yeah, I certainly 100% agree that the sprint needs to be something distinct, which it just hasn't been so far. It's either been the first part of the Grand Prix or just a completely irrelevant Saturday as it's been uh, over the course of this year. So it's going to be six, as you said, next year in China, Miami, Austria, Austin, Brazil and Qatar. And obviously your solution gets around one of the things I dislike about the reverse grids thing is I'm not fundamentally objecting to reverse grids for the sprint, but I don't really like it when there's a qualifying session for it. But what you're suggesting there is is a way to make that work. So it's an interesting proposal. And these will be the sort of things that uh, F1 will be thinking about. But it is strange, isn't it, Gary? Because they come up with this big change and they have the chance to do something different, something more extreme. And then it progressively gets watered down, doesn't it? Because they ended up making the sprints as similar as possible to the regular races and in fact they took out a lot of the things that they've introduced in recent years to try and liven up the Grand Prix itself so it's quite a bit of a case study in the way F1 works isn't it that there's oh here's this great idea and then the teams will push back and make it as conservative as it possibly can be. Yeah I think that's that's a little bit sad because I think sometimes you need to sort of see the big picture. I personally like racing you know I like I like watching the race. Qualifying the event of qualifying is it's pretty good but I, you know, it's 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 a, an exciting sort of time that that one hour, you know, the three the three qualifying sessions. But there can be a little bit more, and as I say, that one lap at the end for the fastest five cars um, just just continues what they're doing really with the slowest five disappearing at the time, and it just means that right at the end, you know, you've got this one set of tires, you've got to make a count, and that's for the that's for the main race, you know, and, and we're, we're we're all happy that the main race has you know the fastest cars at the front. It's not necessarily right because then we try to to breed artificial overtaking, which is you're sort of saying to a slower car in theory, or potentially a an overall slower car, but a tire that might just be a little bit better on its tires, 
with DRS that you can come and, and potentially overtake a faster car. And you know that's that's a bit sort of to me a bit of a gray area. But I think that the, the having the, the the grid reversed from the first session of qualifying from the twenty cars running is quite good because if you try to get clever and put yourself in a bit of a a difficult position by hovering around that 14th, 13th, 15th area just to try to be better up the grid uh, for the sprint race uh, to get some points, then you do run the risk of of not being there. So I, you know, I could I could quite happily say that if the teams are clever and you do it that way with the the, the, the first 20, the first session twenty cars in a first bit order, you will see most of the quick guys hovering around the middle somewhere, you know, around the 10th, 8th, you know, that sort of area, just making sure they're in the middle of the grid for when the sprint race starts so they do have a chance of winning it, which is good. But it's um, at least it gives some of the smaller teams that opportunity to to get to the front. So, um, you know, I think it satisfies everybody. And as I say, I keep saying, as you said as well, it will be a different race to the Grand Prix. It won't be just the same. It'll be a whole different set of um, requirements, you know, from the driver and from the team, how they set the car up, all that. So, the points at the end of the sprint race need to be reasonable. Um, maybe it needs, you know, needs to add a couple more points on for the guy that wins it because you would hope that somebody who wouldn't be in line for scoring good points in Grand Prix Sunday, that they might actually drag some decent points out of um, out of sprint Saturday. So uh, for me, as I say, we qualify on Saturday morning. Uh, the sprint race will be Saturday afternoon and then the Grand Prix Sunday as normal. Yeah, and certainly I think the question of points in a closer championship the points will become more significant, won't they? Obviously, this year, no amount of points would have made the sprint particularly significant unless you, I don't know who were giving 100 points for a win, probably. Um, so it, it was never going to matter. But yeah, certainly agree, making it significant and making it different because I think if you're going to just echo the Grand Prix as it has some, uh, as it has so far, you might as well just not do it at all. So some interesting ideas there. Interesting to see what F1 comes up with. It's probably going to be January, late January before they finalise the format because why would you work it out in good time well in advance of the season when you can leave it to the last minute and then say you've run out of time and come up with something that's a bit half-baked. But I don't know, maybe they'll surprise me, but we shall see. Let's get on to our main topic, which is a look at the nine losers, so the teams who couldn't get close to Red Bull most of the time. And first up, we'll start with the nearest challengers, although realistically they were neither near nor actual challengers in Mercedes and Ferrari. But that battle for second place was very close. It went down to the last lap of the last race. It was won by Mercedes. Would you say that that says Mercedes had the better car, did the better job, developed better over the season compared to Ferrari? Um, no, I would say actually completely the opposite. Um, I think Ferrari did a better job. And the reason I say that is because you've got to look back and, you know, over those last few races, um, basically Ferrari suffered a lot. I mean, Leclerc in Brazil, when he went off in the warm-up lap, didn't, didn't have a chance to score any of the points that he potentially could have done. Carlos Sainz with his, his grid place penalty in, uh, in Vegas. And there was a race prior to that where Sainz didn't participate at all because of a fuel pressure problem or a fuel problem. So they they lost, you know, just simply they lost a lot of points through, in reality, yes, it is a fault of their own. Obviously, it's always a fault of the team, but through no real fault of their own, they were more competitive. And I think um, Mercedes, to be honest, I I didn't see them getting better during the season. I believe the Ferrari at the end of the season moved in the right direction. The, the car got more driver-friendly. 
I mean, the car is more driver friendly. The driver, the driver can put it more on the limit without the risk of uh, always end up in the barrier, or potentially end up in the barrier. So, I believe personally that Ferrari did a better job, and, and um, that Mercedes were, were quite lucky whenever Ferrari didn't score decent points in those races where they had problems even before the start of the race. So, you know, we we had a situation where. Mercedes made such a big deal of the car at Austin, how the, the improvements were not really going to be lap time, but it was the direction for next year. And it was to confirm that their direction was in the, in the right direction. And obviously after the, the race there, both Ferrari and um, Lewis Hamilton and Charles Leclerc um, got a car thrown out for the plate wear. So they both lost out because of that. But from a car that in, in, um, in Austin, you know, Lewis Hamilton was raving about, to a car in, in Brazil where he was just, you know, thought was diabolical. Um, it's it's a strange it's a strange end to a season for a team. I think on the other hand, Ferrari were going the right direction. Leclerc was much happier with the car at the end of the day with their floor modifications, and that takes them into the winter with a little bit of confidence in the direction they're going in. When you look at the overall position of those teams, what you've learned from their cars, which one do you think's better placed to challenge Red Bull next season. I guess that's based on what we know they've got back at base and also the understanding they've shown through the car. Does one or the other stand above the other in that regard? Um, I think the understanding that Ferrari have of the car is is better. Um, I think there's room for Ferrari's you know, concepts, of a big word, because we only see what we see. Um, but in making the car more driver-friendly at the end of the season, by underfloor changes, which we don't see, um, other than the, the outer edge of the floor and how they manage the airflow down the side of the car. By making the car better for the driver and more consistent um, with, as I say, developments that we don't actually see, I think that they have a handle on how the underfloor needs to work. And I believe that the visual concept that we see, they can optimize it a little bit. I think, you know, and it's easy to say the red, the red Bull radiator intake pump is really good, blah, blah, blah. But what it is, the, the good part about it is that whenever the radiator blocks up, which it does at speed, um, and it just basically can't flow all the flow you're, you're, you're firing at it through the radiator intake, um, it has to spill off somewhere. On the Red Bull, they manage that quite well. It spills off over the top of the side pod. Um, and it, so it doesn't affect the, the airflow structure underneath through that undercut side pod area and down the side of the car. It's consistent there, even when the radiator, even from low speed to high speed, is consistent because at low speed, the, the radiator can flow all the air that's thrown at it, but at high speed, it can't. And what you want to do is make sure it doesn't that doesn't affect the rest of the car. On the Ferrari, they have a sort of eyelet inlet, I suppose you might call it, so the flow that's being spilled out of the radiator intake coming around the side, high up, so it's not got a big effect on the undercut of the side pod or the, the floor edge, but it still has an effect. So I think there's room for improvement in what I call the visual concept on the Ferrari um, in a reasonable way. And if they can do that in conjunction with the understanding they have from the last few races of the how to make the underfloor work and give the driver confidence, in other words, have an underfloor centre of pressure moves rearwards with speed, um, it will be a big help now. Saying that the centre of pressure moves rearwards at speed, that's not really true. The, the centre of pressure needs to move rearwards as the gap to the ground gets smaller. That's the big thing. Because speed dictates that there's more load in the car from the wings. It pushes the car near the ground, and then you generate more downforce. And what you need to make sure when that's happening, 
at the center of pressure and the car is moving rearwards and not moving forwards. So that's Ferrari. I think they have room for improvement. They don't run with as much anti-dive on the front suspension as the Red Bull, so they've got a bit of improvement there. The rear suspension, they do have some anti-lift on it, but not quite as much as a, as the the Red Bull. And to be honest, to optimize that and, and make use of that to control their platform will again give them a little bit of an advantage. And moving on to Mercedes, they've gone down the wrong path with how they... The, how they comply with the side impact structures, and they've incorporated the side impact structure into what was sort of the, the their wing mirror mount, uh, which has meant that they can't really do much with that radiator intake on the on the current car. That concept of radiator, radiator intake, the Red Bull or the Ferrari have, because they they you know they have to connect the side pod to that um, to that wing mirror mount to comply with the side pod regulation. So they got themselves in a box into a little corner. So. For them, it's it's you know it's a much bigger step for them to take to get back to to follow the path that Red Bull have set or even Ferrari have set without radiator intake detail. Um, you know they went the the other route of minimising the side pods, sort of basically taking them off and saying I don't have any side pod here. But that doesn't allow you the the side pod undercut the detail down the edge of the floor to manage that flow down through the side of the floor. So. You know, you need to have some of these things to actually help manage the flow and, and get the airflow structure in the right areas. Because if, it, if, there's, if the airflow is losing its velocity and it's losing its energy, and you have, sometimes you have to use the bodywork to, to maneuver it and give it a little bit of help, give it a little bit of a help to push it around that corner a little bit. So uh, I think Mercedes need to take big steps um, before they can become, let's say, Red Bull competitive. And the fact that what they've got obviously suits some circuits, and we see that quite often. But what they've got also is very confusing. They don't know why it's quick and they don't know why it's slow. So that means that you know the the, the, the downforce that they produce isn't consistent, and they need to sort of get on top of that. And they didn't show that to me right at the end of the season because when the drivers say in Austin the car was mega, and in Brazil the car was terrible, um, they're both basically the same car, uh, just a slightly different track. Now, if you look at other teams that are you know, competitive, i.e., Red Bull or Ferrari. They're there both at both events. You know, they're they're in, com- in competition at both events, so they have a better understanding and better consistency in their package. Mercedes have very little understanding and very little consistency. So Mercedes have a lot of work to do to to get that consistency. Well, this is the big problem, isn't it? That Red Bull have such a command of the demands of the regulations. They've been on the right track right from the start at the beginning of last year that that catch-up process is very difficult both ferrari and mercedes have talked about how next year's car is going to be brand new all new components big architectural changes so they know the areas they need to be working in but it's probably quite a big ask to expect a big change of direction that will instantly yield enough performance to be there at red bull's level or do you think if they get it right there's enough understanding and knowledge available to them that they should be able to do something that, that bothers Red Bull? Well, there's every opportunity for both Ferrari and Mercedes to, to be a Red Bull challenger. The regulations are the same for everybody. It's about applying them the best way possible. And what I'm sure it says, from my point of view, Ferrari are they're 9 out of 10 as far as competitiveness relative to Red Bull. And, uh, and for me, right at the moment, Mercedes are probably 7 out of 10. So Mercedes have more to do to get to the same level as, as Red Bull. They've got more, they've got to overcome more problems. Um, and Ferrari have overcome a few of those problems. So either of them should be able to do that. 
Um, but it's whoever you know bites the bullet and actually really does get on with it and and make sure that they they push the limits to the maximum. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a big ask, isn't it? So yeah, both are capable in terms of the resources they've got, and F1 fans will be hoping that ideally both of them get up there. But yeah, it's uh, it's still quite a big. Uh, big ask for them let's look at the next pair of teams now mclaren and aston martin we've paired them because not only were they fourth and fifth but their seasons kind of reflected each other didn't they aston martin started well and then uh, lost performance relative to the rest obviously they didn't literally go slower but relative they were slower and mclaren started pretty appallingly and then became very, very quick and at times were Red Bull's strongest challenger. So let's look at Aston Martin first. Obviously, he had the influx of personnel. Dan Fallows, who'd worked with Adrian Newey for a very long time, became the chief technical officer, but they've got very, very accomplished people from pretty much every team in the pit lane. Eric Blundown from uh, Mercedes, for example. And they came up with this car that that built on the previous years, but that drew in lots of thinking from other teams. Is there a concern that that might limit them a little bit next season because they, they kind of had this car that was the aggregate of all these ideas and then it needs to become self-sustaining and self-developing, doesn't it? And it was a bit stuttering this year. So how do you see Aston Martin for next year? Well, yeah, that what you say there is exactly the right problem. You come in with all these ideas that you've gained through your experience with other teams. We, you know, we've all done it. We always come along and say, you know, well, we did this this way and we did that that way. But at the end of the day, you once you've got that in place, you, you have got to stand up yourself sometimes and make decisions to take it forward. Um, and you don't get input from the other teams anymore, from your knowledge from them, because you've, you've, you've exploited that. So I think that's probably one of the reasons Aston Martin stuttered at the beginning of the year. They they took what you know what anybody would do. They take a car, which is X Dynaforce, it's got X profile, aerodynamic profile with right height, blah, blah, blah. And look, we can find another two or three percent downforce um, if we do this to it. And they find that two or three percent downforce, and the car goes slower. Um, and that's a big learning curve. But it's better to learn it than not learn it. So uh, then, by recovering before the end of the season, reasonably, I don't think they recovered one hundred percent by any means. They probably recovered fifty percent. Um, I think by retesting some of the stuff and recovering as best they could within the within the season's limitations, they've been able to improve their understanding of what makes a car go quick, and that would maybe keep them away from getting too excited over the winter of of the, you know these mega mega downforce cars like Mercedes came up with two years ago. As far as they were concerned, they had a car that had you know fifty percent more downforce than anybody else may have been, but if you can't if a driver can't use it, it's a waste of time. And in, in Fernando Alonso, as a driver, they have somebody who's pretty black and white. You know, again, a bit like Max Verstappen. Uh, you know, he doesn't leave any stone unturned. He's a, a very good driver, I think, for Aston Martin at this point in time, because he's been there, seen that, done that. You know, all that sort of stuff. And you know, he won two world championships, but reality of it is, he's you know, he should have won more. He was very close to winning more. So he's a very, very competitive, hungry animal, I suppose you might call him still. At, even at his age. If they hadn't got Max Verstappen in there, and let's say they had just um, Lance Stroll and, and the, um, their, their test driver, Felipe uh, Dogovic, um, you know, they would be standing there scratching their head because they wouldn't really know which way to turn. Whereas they, at least they've got confidence in Fernando. He's got the experience to have his own confidence. He can say what's good and what's bad. So they've got an ideal situation in the driver lineup with Fernando too, 
make sure that they go in the right direction. Um, so I, my, my big worry would be why they went off track mid-season. Okay, there may be reasons. They may also need to know the reasons why they couldn't get back 100% to where they were. Time will dictate that, you know, when you're doing developments in the wrong direction, it means you're losing time because you're not developing in the right direction. So there's maybe part of that. But at the end of the day, they just need to make sure that they take the facts that are in front of them. And, and you know, they are black and white. They should have taken the facts mid-season when they started the, the downturn. They should have taken those facts a bit earlier and accepted them. But I think they kept on trying to find the solution to the new developments before they actually really took it on board that they'd gone the wrong direction and they did to regroup. But they did regroup, and it's okay. I mean, McLaren are the other way around, completely the opposite. They probably didn't finish quite finish the season at McLaren as strong as they really would have liked to, but they started the season really badly, and they, they took steps through the season that basically led them to a, a very good performance car. Um, Carly, they say, is very good at high speed, but doesn't and just the, the downforce at low speed. I keep arguing there is no, no real difference. Um, it's the car doesn't produce the downforce at high ride heights. It produces the, the downforce at low ride heights, and the two go hand in hand. If you've got a car that produces bucket loads of downforce at high ride heights, you will get into airflow separation problems at low ride heights. If you've got a car that's producing lots good quality, um, stable downforce at low ride heights, then it's unlikely to produce high levels of downforce at, at, at high ride heights. So the two go hand in hand. You need to find a compromise. And you need to make sure that the underfloor separation problems that you're always going to get when something's near the ground, that you manage them correctly. So that at high speed, although the car has got airflow separation, it's not got problematic airflow separation. It's got managed airflow separation. And that will allow you to have a car that produces good downforce at high ride heights um, for low speed corners. And it will give you a car that produces good consistent downforce at low ride heights when the airflow separation problems step in. So I think McLaren got on top of that a little bit, but not the end of the season wasn't quite as strong as they, they felt it needed to be. The interesting thing with McLaren is, obviously they made this huge step over the course of the year, but they've still got a car that's famously tricky to drive on the knife edges. It's always described, and that, as you mentioned, the slow corner weakness. So when you look at Red Bull's trajectory, they are a team who you could see mounting a challenge to Red Bull next year, but they have these couple of specific weaknesses to tackle. So how easy do you think it'll actually be for them to solve those problems? Obviously, you've covered a little bit the uh, the, the downforce at the, at the higher ride heights for the slow corners, but is that going to be an easy fix without the trade-offs, meaning they're losing some of the other performance? Can you solve all of that in one new car? Well, you can. Um, the, as I say earlier, the, the big thing is the regulations are the same for everybody. So within that set of regulations, Red Bull have proven this is what you can achieve out of it. The first thing to do is recognise who your problems are. And, and as they're saying, you know, our car's not as good at, at, uh, at low speed as, as high speed. Whenever they went to Vegas, that was completely the contrary. They were they were very impressed with their car at low speed. So sometimes you get in this grey area of this cloudiness that sort of says, a certain track, the car is not good in low-speed corners, but then you go to another track and the car is good at low-speed corners. So it's about, you know, it's about a bit about the package and being able to manage the package in the in the, in the correct way. If if they can recognise the, the the areas that they need to develop, which, as you say, the car has had over the last few years has had this tricky to drive um, 
sort of problem and low speed problem, then you know what you're focused on. Um, you just need to, you know, as I say, you just need to recognize it. And then they've got a lot of clever people. I think that structurally right now, they're in a good position. I mean, I criticized McLaren on many occasions in the past years about them not accepting where they really were um, and trying to believe their own hype. Um, I think that's gone past now. I think they got through that side of it. And they're at the other side now where, where results count. They have two very good drivers in the car. I think Piastri is probably leading to Norris making a few more mistakes because he, he, he knows there's no hiding place anymore. They've got a driver there that's, that's, that's up and coming, you know, to, to a fantastic level. Um, so at the end of the day, it's about the team as a group buying into the problem and putting their energies into fixing them. You know, there's no point in making the car better where it's really good. You need to make it better where it's not good. And that's about recognizing the problem. They can do it within the regulations. They've just got to do it. And of course, there's five other teams. We won't go through all of them one by one, but which of those other five teams impressed you the most, or perhaps I should say, unimpressed you the uh, uh, <laughs> the least is perhaps the way to look at it. Yeah, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? You know, the, to, to actually assess where they are, if you take Renault, all the pilots it is now, the Renault engine, you know, again, they're up and down a bit like a yo-yo. Um, some of that blame can be the engine, the power unit. Um, some of that blame can be the chassis, but altogether it's up and down like a yo-yo. So I don't think you could put any assessment on it. End of the season there, they were potentially a bit stronger, but uh, driver-wise, they do, they do seem to sort of have a little bit of a problem with each other, and that's never good within a team. But the, you know they are a works team as such. You know they manufacture the whole car, including the, the power unit, gearbox, a little bit. So we expect more out of them because of that. You know, they, they should be in that top bunch, that top five. They're not. Um, and McLaren are as such a privateer team. So I think for Alpine's big focus at the minute, it is getting to the level of Aston Martin and McLaren. That's what they need to be bouncing around with. Joining Ferrari or, or Mercedes or Red Bull is a bit far-fetched at this point in time. So they need to be they need to be sort of becoming the the fourth best team, I suppose, because of of what they the credibility they should have as a as a works team. Um, and if you keep going backwards, AlphaTauri, you know they've had a troubled season with drivers come and go and like you know broken wrists and you know whatever you like to call it, everything was thrown at them. But in general, the car at the beginning of the season was weak. Um, they have a massive relationship with Red Bull, um, and they should be able to use. You know every nut and bolt that the regulations allow you to use, and then from there on in, that will drive you uh, to an aerodynamic concept that I'm sure they understand quite well. Um, because I think every team maybe understands it quite well. It's just about you know actually exploiting it on your car. So Alpha Tori should be able to get themselves up there into that sort of next little bunch, and and probably they should be competitive with. Um, with McLaren and, and Aston Martin in reality because they are a privateer team, but they have, you know, as I say, a very close relationship with Red Bull. They can take the whole back end of the car, engine, gearbox, suspension, the whole bit, and, and bolt it onto their car legally. Um, so why not? Um, that that takes us to seven teams, and then, you know, eight, nine, and ten, which are all for Mayo, or Sauber as it is, uh, Williams, and Haas. Um, I think you have to sort of say that the Haas... Um, the Haas way of going about Formula One, their uh, their model is starting to suffer. You know the, the consequences of being this little independent team, taking as much as you can from Ferrari, 
and then doing the rest is, is really starting to suffer quite a bit. I think the team that's shown them that is is, uh, is Williams. You know, Williams have definitely got their 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 focus on being better now. I think that um, you know they've got become a stronger team this this year. Um, they've got more focus on it. They're not wanting to sort of get results tomorrow. They understand it's a long process, um, and and are willing to build on it. And then again, about the, the what was Alpha Vale, which is really sad. But they're at a holding pattern at the moment. They're theoretically being taken over by ID. Um, if I was ID, I'd be the worried one because you know at the end of the day, ID are, are coming into Cyber as a as a major partner, and um, that major partner, you know, needs to come with a lot of a lot of knowledge because Cyber as they are haven't really shown that they've they've got that within themselves. So that that that's going to be a big challenge over this next season. Those three teams um, to really sort of show that they're worthy of being there, and uh, I think. You know, very easily Hask could end up being on the, on the back of the bunch um, with, with Sauber next up and, and Williams ahead of that. But it's, it's going to be as big a bat at the back as it is at the front. Yeah, and of course, it's still quite compressed, about 1.5% or thereabouts on uh, on average performance covering front to back. So quite small performance swings can make a big difference. So there's hope for everyone, but yeah, it's going to be pretty difficult for that group at the back to uh, make a significant step forward. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on the next series of this podcast. It can be on anything at all, F1 ancient or modern, some technical question you've always wanted to know the answer to. Gary has the answer to them all. So you can send a written email to podcasts at race.com or if you prefer, record a voice note and send that to us, letting us know who you are, and we'll play that in the show. We've got three questions to get through today and the first is from Brett in Australia who says hi Gary thanks for keeping us entertained all year not sure if it's something touched on previously but I'm keen to hear your thoughts on F1 doubling down on the hybrid engine for 2026 lately Liberty and F1 has really leaned into the show aspect with key examples of Las Vegas and sprint races so if it's all about show why aren't they looking at moving back to big screaming V8s imagine 18,000 rpm of goodness echoing off the hotel windows at places like Vegas so the question is, why are they so persistent in keeping hybrids? If you look across the car makers, it seems most car manufacturers are leaning into true EVs compared to hybrids. And with the increased popularity of F1, surely the sport is more about the 300 kilometer an hour billboards and corporate hospitality rather than being a proving ground for car manufacturers. I had to laugh when Ford announced their Red Bull 2026 deal earlier in the year. They dubbed a V8 V10 over their logo in their teaser video. Doesn't that say it all? So Gary, F1 and hybrids, what's your take? F1 and hybrids, I think, you know, currently F1 has to go that direction. And there's nothing wrong with going that direction. Let's take the, the, the engines at the moment, the current engine, the hybrid. Um, one of the things that the package that we have is, a, you know, it's 1.6 litre, yeah, 1.6 litre um, V6 with the turbo. And the turbo was there because it drove the, the MGUH. 
um, and the MGUH was allowed to to generate power outside of the, the amount you're allowed to flow through the battery pack. So that that was all well and good. That was a good package. I I think right now um, that for 2026, as the MGUH is is taking a dive, they don't want that there anymore because it's just a, a cost that's that's not necessary. That they should actually also get rid of the turbo. Because that's the thing, that's the that's the silencer on the exhaust noise. It doesn't really matter if things are 1.6 or or um, you know, a, a V8 or a V10. If you can rev the engine, you will get you will get um noise. Um so it's it's possible that it could change, you know. They don't they don't have to change it from being a, a V6. They can keep that V6 and run the revs higher. And then, as I say, with the turbo not there, it would end up being um, it would be more, much more noisy. And you can still have the electric package on top of that, which I think personally I don't mind. Um, it is a deployment of, of you know um, normal uh, ECU power against electrical power, and you still have to harvest it in some way. So the the, the harvesting motor will obviously be bigger. The the output motor will obviously be bigger, which you use the same motor for. So I think the whole thing works out, you know, all right as a hybrid package. I think the 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 the, the stumbling block for me over the past years has been a the turbo and b the the MGUH. I think the MGUH was a good idea because it was something that you know all all the stuff that comes out of the exhaust pipes is wasted. The MGUH was something that gathered that waste to a certain extent, but it's been decided that it's not really worth the complication and that cars aren't going in that direction. So. I would love to see, you know, a V6 engine revving to eighteen thousand um, with no turbo on it, and uh, limit the fuel tank size so that basically you've got X amount of fuel to take you for X amount of distance. And the fact that you can have more electrical power means that obviously the electric motor and the battery pack and all that has to be a bit bigger. That's the way life is at the moment. Most cars that are out, road cars that are out there, you know, they are hybrid. The, the, the decent ones I've got an electric car. Um, I personally, my wife has got an electric car, and it's an absolute pain to get charged up when you're out and about. It doesn't have a big battery life on it because it was bought as a run around. But if you ever go out somewhere and want to do some miles in it, you just don't want to know about it. You pull into a petrol station, it's got you know 16, 18, 20 fuel pumps, and they might have one EV charger, maybe if you're lucky. So we're really not in a position to have fully electric cars on on the road by any means, but you are sort of in a reasonable position to have a decent hybrid car on the road. Um, so I think Formula One by being hybrid is acceptable, but it's not acceptable because of you know they need to sort of do something with the noise level and make it into that spectacle. And the second part of your question, you know, that that really covers it. You can you could have the hybrid car and you could have the exhaust noise. So why not get the best of both? Yeah, it seems a sensible approach, especially as there is this fundamental tension, isn't there, between the show element and needing to be technologically relevant to the manufacturers to get the money in. It's uh, yeah, something F1's always, I guess, struggled with. The next question is one looking backwards a little bit. 
comes from a Rollinson who says, Gary, what the hell did you think when you first saw the Tyrrell P34? Was it good luck with that or we'd better get copying? Will the P34 go down as a heroic failure despite its success in 1976 with a win and eight further podiums or a brilliant curio that deserved wider adoption? And for those who don't remember, the P34, of course, was the six-wheeled Tyrrell with the uh, with the four front wheels. So you'd have been at Brabham when that car first emerged, wouldn't you? Yes, and it's very interesting, really, because actually I was sitting at a pub with my brother-in-law um, who worked at uh, Tyrrell's. And, um, you know, we, we just were con- having a bit of a conversation over a pint, as you do. And uh, it was one of those sort of things that came up. He said, you never guess what we're doing. And my first guess... My first thing I said to him, you're building a six-wheeler with four small wheels at the front. (laughs) Semi-joking, but just thinking the way he was talking about it, you know, talking was just like, you'll never guess what we're building. And he was astounded. He just couldn't believe that I'd actually sort of had a guess at this thing. Um, So, yeah, okay, we go on to the car itself. And obviously, there was reasons for everything. Um, But I, you know, if I had been trying to do it, um, I think I'd have gone for the the Williams and, and the March approach, which was to put the, the smaller wheels on the back because it's the, the rear wheels are really a big drag penalty. Um, so it was one of those sort of situations, I think, where, I mean, it won a race. Um, so you can't really criticise it that dramatically, but oh, very strange, very strange concept in the fact you had the big rear wheels and, and those four front wheels. And if you, if you look at any cars through that period in time because of the the tires that you had on them, the cross-ply tires as such, you know, the cars were always sliding that little bit. They always had that momentum and they always had a, bit, a little bit, it looked like a little bit of oversteer because of the cross-ply tires. The slip angles could be quite a lot higher. Um, so I think, you know, with the, with the four front wheels, they sort of, well, four any wheels really, different from other, other, other cars with other tires on them, you sort of develop yourself into a box that you really had trouble getting out of because the tire development wouldn't necessarily transfer as Goodyear sort of um, got themselves into a better position with, with better tyres for the the mass cars, the bigger tyres, you know, you're you're going to be left behind a little bit. So that's probably one of the reasons why it, it didn't get better because the tyre development wasn't there. But it was a bit of a shock, but I did guess it that night in the pub, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think many would have guessed that at the time. It's certainly a big surprise when it came out. But yeah, the, the six-wheelers were an interesting avenue that were closed off before they were really maximised. So it would have been very interesting to see what happened, particularly had Williams been able to press on with their uh, six-wheeler. I know uh, Patrick Head wasn't delighted that uh, Frank Williams had agreed to that particular avenue being uh, closed off. And our third question comes from Mike Listmeyer from Pennsylvania, USA, who says, as the final laps of Abu Dhabi were winding down, I was thinking to myself, I wonder how far along the top teams are with their 2024 car developments. I know teams start around the middle part of the season, but from your experience, Gary, how far along do you think the development of the following year's car is say by mid late november and what are the final things that need to be done before it's complete yes um well if i go back you know 20 years um you're right and you're saying you start the car development about the middle of the season we would have a sort of routine of you're really getting quite into it by july the first um and then you design and build your car and get it ready for you know the beginning of january you go and do some testing, you start racing it, you sort of your problem list builds and builds and builds, um, and your performance list builds and builds. So you sort of try to try to sort that all out. 
as the early part of the season happens and you get up to July again and you start again with the next year's car. So it was a sort of six-month cycle, I suppose, of, of um, research and development and car design and car build. Six months of trying to get the best out of it and then six months starting on the next year's car, trying to fix all the problems. Currently, the teams, the teams are so big that, I mean, it's a continual process, but it sort of happens in the same way that the percentage of people working on on um, the twenty twenty five car right now would be reasonably small, but it's probably still you know still bigger than we were twenty years ago as a team. You're probably talking ten fifteen percent of the the design group would now be working on the twenty twenty five car, um, and the other you know eighty percent, however it be, will will be finalising details of the of the twenty twenty four car, and uh, that sort of percentage changes over again mid-season you know as you sort of start to do your initial research in the beginning of the season you will you'll wind it up as you get to sort of july the first or such and then it becomes more less of a research more of a detailing and the big things are the things you've got to get built first so most most formula one teams will be expecting their first chassis um the first gearbox the probably the first fuel tanks to be you know, not long from now, getting into a van and heading for the factory, or being you know finally manufactured, because they are the long term things. So you have to commit to sometimes the, as we say, the sort of uh, the concept of the car, the general architecture of the survival cell. You have to commit to that quite quite early because it's, it takes time to build that, and then as time goes by, you um you optimize all the little bits around that. You know, the bodywork, the radiator intakes, the radiators, you know, all that stuff. And it's really dictated by the build schedule. So you've got yourself a situation where the car is going to run on X date and you need to have the car ready for that. So you work that backwards, you know, making the radiators may take a, you know, a month. So you have to start your, your radiator design earlier and then you have to have the final drawings and um, the models all ready by a certain date. So it allows the people to manufacture them for a certain date because what you really want to do, and what Red Bull have, have done in the past, and it's helped them a lot, is they've, they've instead of trying to design better stuff, they've tried to reduce manufacturing time. So it's allowed them to design for longer, research for longer, and make the bits quicker. So if you can, you know, out of that month, let's say, for a radiator package of manufacturing, let's say you can cut that down to three weeks, that means you've got another week in, in design and research. And that's just fantastic that's just you know ultra important so it's not always just about making the best thing that you have at that point in time it's about shortening the manufacturing time so it gives you more time to research and develop develop stuff so i think you know at the end of the day it's still that same cycle you've got this six month period where it's all from J- july to the car f- turns its wheels that's your big final design detail and build pro program then six months of learning but during that six months of learning now because the teams are so big you will have a skeleton team um working on you know on on other ideas for the future and now with the regulations changing for 2026 we've also got to have a, a part two skeleton team doing a little bit of work i mean the, the regulations have come out we're not allowed to start your 2026 car until january the first 2025 that doesn't stop you thinking about it, you know. They might they might not be able to put pen to paper, but you can do a lot of thinking and you can just get yourself in a good position just by having time to sit down and focus on the regulations. And um, yeah, I mean, nobody can stop you sketching on a sketch pad. And uh, there's some people out there that are very good at sketching on a sketch pad. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And, and of course, it's always worth remembering with the new cars that it's kind of a constant process, isn't it? Because there's a big lag between finishing off your design drawings and having the parts on the car and you have to strategize how you sign things off to make sure you can get the key aero parts signed off as late as possible so you can get them bolted on whether it's in testing or early races so it's I guess that's the area where it's changed most just how big a management job that is simply because you've got enough people that you can have that scale of projects whereas in the past with smaller teams it was perhaps a little bit more linear. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's always been a difficult one to actually put that process together. The teams I've worked for, you know, we had a lot of manufacturing outside, so you didn't you didn't really control control all the manufacturing as well as you wanted to. But you know, currently, I'd say just to sort of sum it up: if you if you really got confidence in the car, the last thing you need to bolt onto it is the rear view mirrors, because if your car is quick enough, you don't need to use them. So. Um, you know, they don't need to be settled on the shelf ready to bolt in the car before they, the rest of the car arrives. So the last thing before you put the car in the truck to go for the first test should be the rear view mirrors. If you can do that, then you've uh, you've managed your build process pretty well. Yeah, and of course, this all has such a huge significance because it decides where you are at the start of the season and it's setting the trend for the upgrades early in the year as well. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's a very interesting and complicated process now, but what's certainly the case is what's going on at the factories now will have a big impact on the competitiveness next year. And of course, they've got the extra challenge this year of there being a winter shutdown. So there's a mandatory shutdown uh, over the, the Christmas period as well, so that uh, personnel aren't worked too hard. So yeah, plenty going on, even though it's the, the off-season, it's a, it's a hugely busy time when it comes to finishing off the the testing spec and the race one spec cars and getting it all built well thanks very much for those questions and indeed for all the questions we've received this series if anyone has a question about f1 tech please send it through to podcasts at the race.com that's podcasts at the hyphen race.com they can be as simple or complex as you like and we'll put them into the pot for the next series and thanks also to gary for your vast insights over the course of the series there's not going to be too long to wait for more wisdom as we'll be back next year with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.